Ghouls. Happy Hump Day and welcome to Ghoul Friends Podcast, brought to you by your best ghoul friends, Lucy and Lindsay. Grab your blankets, snacks and good vibes for tonight's sleepover, where the category is always horrifically spooky. If you want to keep up with us on the socials, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at GhoulFriendPod on Twitter and GhoulFriends underscore podcast on Instagram. You can also listen to us on all podcasting platforms where we release new episodes every Wednesday. And if you want to follow me on my personal socials, you can find me on Twitter and Twitch at Lulu underscore Pew. And I'm at Hi It's Lindsay underscore on all social media. Now let's get spooky. Hey girls, it's Lindsay and welcome to another episode of Ghoul Friends. Uh, Lucy's taken a well-deserved day off today, so um, it's just me, but I'm not alone. I'm joined by Rebecca McCallum from Ghouls Mag. How are you doing? Hi, I feel like it's double the dose of ghouls today. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Um, so this week we are going to be talking about black and white horror films, which I was really excited to get into. Um, what was your choice for our spooky sleepover this week, Rebecca? So I love black and white horror, so I was really spoiled for choice. But I thought, you know, this film seems to fly under the radar a little bit. So any chance I can get to sort of cheerlead for it, I, I do. So yeah, I've picked Jack Clayton's The Innocents from 1961. I 100% agree that it like goes under the radar. I'd like never heard of it before, but now that I've kind of been like researching it all week, I keep seeing mm. it on like greatest British films of all time list, yeah. greatest horrors of all time list. And I'm just like, why did no one tell me this existed before? Um, it's quite similar to a film we did a couple of weeks ago. Um, we were looking at Sleepaway Camp franchise and Lucy and I mentioned that it's impossible to find on streaming. And similar with this, it was really difficult to find on streaming, like even to rent somewhere. So I was really lucky I was able to like find a bootleg copy on YouTube to watch. Yep. But <laughs> like, I feel like it's a really important film. And I'm like, mm-hmm. why is it? Why can't I rent it on Amazon Prime? Like... It's just bizarre to me. Yeah, we need to campaign for wider distribution and availability of the innocents. <laughs> exactly. And uh, Lucy chose our other film, and we are going to be looking at uh, Night of the Living Dead. Very apt for friends <laughs> because we've kind of become a de facto zombie podcast somehow by accident. <laughs> um, so I'm really glad like, we're getting the chance to look at, like, the birth of the modern zombie and mm. um, we definitely need to look at some pre-Romero zombies in the future though I think that would be fun um, but anyway before we get into that Rebecca do you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself how you got into horror and your little corner of the internet my humble little corner yeah um <laughs> so I am a writer of sort of editorials and horror think pieces I've got um, bylines at uh, Drum Court, Dread Central, Grim Journal. Um, I tend to write like from an analytical perspective. That's my jam. I love sort of deconstructing film. Um, I'm also assistant editor at Girls Magazine. So shout out to Girls and uh, Beauty of Horror. And I'm a senior contributor at Moving Pictures Film Club. Um, 
how I got into horror now yeah it's something that I'm always like reassessing and I'm always like finding new aspects of things that I was interested in early in life that I now look back and go that is clearly like the genesis of me like getting interested in horror you know like things like The Wizard of Oz was my favorite film as a kid and I think a lot of that is a bit based around this combination of like fear and excitement that I've been chasing like ever since I guess and there's like two two foundational horror experiences that I had that I'd say were really like the gateway to me really developing a passion and that was um a Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Scream so I saw both those films you know very early teens and they had a huge impact on me and yeah ever since I've really been sort of chasing that same feeling (laughs) and then really it was I've been writing now for maybe three three four years so yeah I'm just always interested in like looking at my experiences with horror at different stages of my life because it does feel like a really organic ever-evolving process it's like these films today like just watching these two films again at this time in my life and in this context you know in the setting of the world as it is at the moment like I was finding oh my responses here are different again so yeah I'm excited to talk about that. I totally identify with that like ever-changing idea of like how how I got into horror because I remember when I first started horror podcasting like I was I was the non-horror fan and then the more more I thought about (laughs) it because I was like I watched horror films but I would never be like I'm a horror movie fan but then the more and more I thought about it it's like I was always into like witches and vampires as a kid and like I keep going further and further back being like oh I actually watched this horror movie this was my first horror movie and going younger and younger and (laughs) the fascinations with different things like particularly around witchcraft for me it was like very much witchy things that got that was like my gateway but yeah I totally identify with that um journey because it's just bizarre to me now that I was ever introduced to anybody as a non-horror fan because it has (laughs) always been a part of my life it's just maybe not something that I put to the forefront of my like personality it's not something I would have identified myself as but it's actually yeah no you have always been into this yeah even you know sort of as a a, sort of eight nine ten I was really into Shakespeare like the tragedies I love them I love the Greek tragedies and the myths and I think again it is that's a combination of like like theatre and the grandness and like the darkness and the macabre that I just absolutely love absolutely so um let's get into our black and white spooky sleepover I'm quite like I'm glad we've gone for some classics like I love revisiting classics it's not particularly in my wheelhouse it's very much Lucy's wheelhouse so I was glad we got the chance to do this because I was like looking at modern ones. I was like, I wonder why we've not gone for a more modern route because there are quite a mm. few like more modern ones. We've got like the Lighthouse, Frank and Weenie, Pie, um, but I love that we are going, especially with the Innocents. Actually, with both of them, this is like such a classic ghost story. Um, you know, it's very akin to, like, The Haunting in 1963 yeah. and, like, other films from the 40s. 
that are just very much based in like psychological terror yes <laughs> rather than like flashy special effects yeah and I think as I get older that's definitely something that I'm finding I'm more drawn to like slashes are officially my favorite subgenre um final girls are very dear to me and you know have played a big part in my sort of horror journey and my personal journey you know I lean on them a lot for strength and support you know in times of like high anxiety and or what do I do there's always a final girl there for me but (laughs) definitely as I've gotten older this psychological aspect is is more interesting to me and with this film I feel like it's really like it feels like it has this ethereal power like it feels like you talking about witchery and stuff it feels like a spell like I feel hypnotized by this film and I also love I love the gothic on film as well and I think this film's got strong notions of the gothic and also it's got a really strong female lead so I love that and you know I like another thing that I've realized as I'm getting older that I love in horror is ambiguity so you know not having everything laid out and explained to me but really being given the space to project and go how do I read that film and being able to to just come to it with a personal response you know not being given this film doesn't give answers it just goes there's the, there's the questions, there's the, there's the, that's what's happening now, you decide, and I, I really appreciate that about this film. Absolutely. Um, okay, so let's get into the plot of The Innocence. There has never been a ghost story created especially for the adult moviegoer until... The Innocence. Do they ever return to possess a living? 20th Century Fox, which presented Deborah Carr in Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, and such outstanding motion picture immortals as Snake Pit, Gentleman's Agreement, and Peyton Place, now gives you The Innocence. Based on the Henry James Chiller of Macabre Evil. Brilliantly adapted for the screen by William Archibald and Truman Capote. Do they ever return to possess the living? The Innocence, produced and directed by Jack Clayton, the man who directed Room at the Top turned into fearful reality by the magnificent performance of Miss Deborah Carr with Michael Redgrave as the uncle, co-starring Peter Wingard, Megs Jenkins. I saw him staring. Who, Miss? The same man, the man on the tower. The tower? But now, just now, he was staring past me into the house as if he were hunting someone. Oh, what's he like, Miss? Oh, he had dark, curling hair and the hardest, the coldest eyes. Is he? Would you say he was very handsome? Oh, yes, yes, handsome, handsome and obscene. <laughs> Do they ever return to possess a living? And when did you first see and hear of such things? Why, I made them up. 
Shall I tell you who taught them to you? I won't ever again, I promise. Shall I tell you who taught you? The things you've done, the things you've said? Shall I tell you his name? <laughs> Perhaps the most controversial concept in human relationships ever presented on the screen. With one of the world's great stars, from the man who directed Room at the Top, a new and adult motion picture experience. So the IMDb plot is a young governess for two children becomes convinced that the house and the grounds are haunted. This was released in 1961, stars Deborah Kerr, Peter Weingard and Meg Jenkins. It was directed by Jack Clayton, who also works on Something Wicked This Way Comes and The Great Gatsby and was written by William Fitzgerald and based on the story of The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. Um, it says that, but as I've been doing research, it's kind of more based on um, William Archibald's yeah. play, The Innocents, and there's also some like uncredited, or at least uncredited on IMDb anyway, uh, rewrites by Truman Capote as yeah. well. Um, so yeah, massive stars in this, um, Deborah Kerr, um, Michael Redgrave, who we haven't talked about, Jack Clayton, like a massive name, and Henry James, his works have been adapted so many times. He has a massive IMDb <laughs> page. Um, so a lot of big hitters in this film. Um, do you remember the first time you watched this? I do remember the first time I watched it, yeah. Um, I was literally just exploring black and white horror, and I'd watched... Carnival of Souls and then I just springboarded onto this and I started to see a lot of similarities between them and you started to dig deep there so yeah I, I do remember the first time I watched it and it really is it, such a, a lean film and like the space in it as well I really love I love the like as I've said like the sort of gothic setting is incredible and you know, the fact that things are left open for interpretation, I love as well. And like you say, you know, once you start digging into it, you're like, the, there's a lot of intertextuality going on with the, the novel and the play. And then I was looking around Jack Clayton himself and, you know, he said he was drawn to this because uh, it represented some fragments of his own childhood. So he identified particularly with the character of Miles it's like he Clayton had a very like tense relationship with his own father who like sent him off to boarding school so I like the fact there's that autobiographical aspect although he didn't actually write it so it feels like it can just give so much. What I also like about Jack Clayton's approach to this is there's like so there's a lot of themes in this that aren't very 1960s friendly but he was so true to his vision like he would not change a single thing yeah. about this that no matter what the studio asked it was like no I'm not changing it I don't care how uncomfortable it makes you this is the idea that I have for this and that's what I'm doing and that adds to it's like longevity as a piece of art like do you know mm -hmm. what I mean yeah like how we respond to it now in 2022 is going to be 
vastly different to 1961 and like as you say some of this film does make you feel uncomfortable for sure I'm not just talking about ghosts (laughs) (laughs) absolutely Right, <clears throat> let's get into this film. So the film is very interesting, like straight from the off. It opens on a completely blank screen with this really haunting, mm-hmm. like song. And at first, like yeah. I was thought, like, oh, this is like my but, like YouTube copy. There's something wrong here. <laughs> but no, that this is a total choice and they they completely pull away from the typical like 20th century folks like opening music as well um what do you think of this how do you think it like sets the scene I think this is genius you know this just pulls you in straight away like I say it's like it weaves a spell and the fact that you've got that the 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 20th century fox thing and you know the, the fact that they chose to replace that with a willow whaley like the song is called and it's a great in terms of setting the tone because this song will be repeated throughout the film in different guises. And it's almost like a cue for when things are turning really dark. And so I just think it's really hypnotic. And, you know, we get, as you say, the blank screen. You, it's it's not like a few seconds. It's like if, it feels like it lasts a while and you're like, oh, what what do I expect here? So yeah, it really just sets the tone and then we get like the the image of like the hands, don't we, that seem to be, what are they doing? Are they like praying? Are they like reaching out for something? Yeah, like it's, yeah, it seems like she's praying, but you then you understand because obviously the film is bookended by these scenes. You realise that she's probably like praying to God for forgiveness or something um, because she's just at the start saying, I just wanted to save the children. And this is something that's repeated throughout the film as well, like Miss Giddens' absolute need to save the children. I'm not entirely sure how I feel about that. Like I've heard about like my friends who've done teaching courses and their fellow students have just been like, oh, I just, I just want to help all the children, but it's very much about them and not the children. And I'm just like, is this about you or is it about them? Like, I'm not sure. Yeah, and I think it's like I'm a sucker for like like cyclical films as well. Mm. So I, I love the bookending thing because it's like this film could be on a loop. And that that's a terrifying thing to me. <laughs> it really is. And I think one thing that I noticed on this view and that I hadn't picked up on before is that Miss Giddens wrings her hands a lot at, at key moments in the film when she's how do I put this? When she's seems to be nervous or excited (laughs) so I think it's setting a little motif there as well so um the film opens with Miss Giddens applying for this job as a governess another like interesting thing about this I didn't want to be rude when I was watching this but there's frequent mentions of Miss Giddens being very young and I was like Deborah (laughs) Kerr doesn't look old in this but she doesn't look like she's in her 20s and then I realized she was actually 40 when she filmed this so (laughs) that threw me off a little bit but I still think she plays it really really well she does. And I think she's gone on record as saying it's like the favourite role of her career. Yeah. And you, you can really see that she's playing all aspects, all potentials. Like, I don't feel like she's gone, this is this is the, the true reading. She's giving you all possibilities, which I really appreciate. And 
you know, in this opening scene, you know, we meet the uncle and we learn, we don't learn very much actually about her at all, which I think is interesting. We don't get tend to get a lot of information about her. So we just hear that she's like daughter of a country parson. Um, and then, you know, we hear later when she gets to, to, to Bly, the house, to look after the children that she'd lived in a very small, cramped environment where it was impossible to keep secrets. So there's that really nice juxtaposition of where she's come from and where she's going and the oppositions there. But then, like, the one thing that really interests me in this scene it, that is will become a theme, like, throughout is uh, the uncle asks her, do you have an imagination? And he says, truth is seldom understood by anyone but imaginative persons. And watching this film, I was like, okay, A, he's literally talking to Miss Giddens, but B, I feel like Jack Clayton is talking to us and going, we are the people with the imagination and we can understand whatever it is we want to understand. So I really like that. I feel like Miss Giddens, like, is us in the film. Like, at so many points, like, later on when she goes to... Bly Manor and there's you can hear the music and when there's something saying Flora it's in tune mm. with the music and it makes you second guess yourself being like yeah. is that something and then it stops and you know for a fine fact you can hear Flora and it's just a lot of the things like I feel like we're discovering everything with Miss Giddens I feel like we are Miss Giddens as the audience do you get yeah. that? Yeah the, the film really does a good job of I think aligning you with Miss Giddens but also making you question her at times yeah right like question yourself as well it's like wait a minute did yeah. I just see that like <laughs> and it's like in this opening that's where we sort of hear about Miss Jessel for the first time you know we hear that she's died but the circumstances are that topic's off limits so you've got this like notion of the forbidden which I think plays into like the gothic and you know just all this repression that's going on in this film and like Miss Giddens seems to be quite swoonish over the uncle doesn't she mm, yeah like because he's saying some things that are really quite horrible about these children like when he's saying I have no room mentally or emotionally to deal with these children I'm just kind of like I feel like you're a bad person but she's just like oh no you're just being honest I'm like yeah. what's wrong with you <laughs> like I don't think that's an appropriate way to talk about children but fair enough maybe she just really wanted the job so she's yeah. like whatever he needs to hear I'll tell him <laughs> perhaps yeah <laughs> um so yeah we find out about the uncle the wealthy bachelor he's like I don't He's not even bothered about her lack of experience or anything either. No. He's just like, you want the job, you can have the job. <laughs> <laughs> because he just wants to be a Get bachelor. Yeah. yeah. So we start to travel to Bly Manor. Um, Miss Giddens decides to like, get out because she really wants to take in the grounds. And I think another like high point of this film I really love period pieces because of the fashion and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think the grounds here, they're done in such painstaking detail. Like everything looks so lush and beautiful and you really get like opulence like from the grounds. Um, and going on this walkthrough, it's just absolutely stunning. And then, like I said, we get this music accompanying Miss Giddens and you think you can hear Flora Flora, Flora. And 
Miss Giddens eventually finds Flora and she's like, somebody's calling on you. Like, are you not going to go after them? And Flora's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And this is kind of our first sign that there's like something not quite right in this place. Um, What do we think about Miss Giddens and Flora's first meeting? I think, as you said before, it's like we hear it, she hears it. So it's like, okay my first suspicion is on Flora and why is she lying because obviously like we could hear it so it sets up this idea of how can we trust the children it's so I think that's really quite delicious and you know before she's even got to the house it's like it's like almost as soon as she steps foot in the peripheral of Bly it has it has her and it's clutches you know and I do touching on what you said about you know the cinematography I, I love the broad shots you know the way it opens up the space and you're always looking for something searching and there's always so much to look at you know throughout the film there's like there's oh there's lots of like mirrors and art and statues which sort of play into that was that a ghost did something move <laughs> so I, I love that and yeah I think Flora seems like really like the the sweetest little girl doesn't she but there's something sinister about that as well I always think (laughs) yeah absolutely um we also meet the housekeeper Mrs Gross and she seems to be part of the furniture and she knows she's been in the house for a really long time she has a really good relationship with Flora and Miles um but she kind of slips up at one point and like miss misspeaks and says someone else's name by accident which in another way I've watched this film twice and both times I'm like I don't catch it so it's that way again I'm like I'm in Miss Giddens shoes Mm. like being like what did you say like who are you talking about what like (laughs) and I think that's like a really clever like bit of writing because I'm still yet again like in Miss Giddens shoes second guessing everything just trying to like brush it off and be like okay I'm just here to look after the kids it's fine um what do you think of Mrs. Gross? I think she, I think she's, you can tell that she's secretly relieved that somebody else has arrived. You know, she's no longer alone. And I think she really seems like the backbone of Bly and um, perhaps someone who's in slight denial and trying to just you know repress things and carry on as normal but I think um Miss Giddens can see especially as time goes on and she starts to get what she you know what seems to be more evidence she can see that this is another woman like try and understand me believe me and I'm kind of willing that to happen as well because I want these two women to sort of like come together in solidarity (laughs) yeah definitely like there is a bit of like fear in Miss Gross at the start and she kind of becomes a bit more comfortable with Miss Giddens around like over the course of the film because like you say she's not left alone with whatever it is that's in this house if they're missing anything at all um so Miss Giddens and Flora are talking and she mentions something about Miles coming home tomorrow like well she's getting a bath I think it is mm-hmm. and everybody's like he's at school what are you talking about and then the very next day, 
uh, Miss Giddens receives a letter that says that Miles has been expelled from school and he's coming home. Um, so again, like very freaky. Like, how does Flora know this? You know, again, like, could it have been the ghost that told her? Is she a bit psychic? Like, who knows? Um, or is she just a, a little girl who's just like, oh, I just want my brother to come home? Do you know what I mean? There's all these questions. Yeah, and, and just no answers. And I think at that time, um, Miss Giddens is sort of reading letters from her sister and her sister sends her like a photograph of her family and Flora asks her, am I in the picture? And she's like, of course you're not, it's my, it's my family. And I really got that early suggestion of Miss Giddens, again, everything, I feel like everything I say has to have like a statement behind it of like, but it could be this and it also could be that, like nothing's definite. But I feel like this is a suggestion of, is she, is Miss Giddens becoming more like Miss Dressel? Is she, is Flora seeing her as Miss Dressel? Is she inserting her into the family? Like, I just, there's this real sense throughout the film of like, Miss Giddens slowly becoming Miss Dressel like even mm. like if we look at her costumes you know they go from like the light colors to the to the dark that sort of seems to reflect Miss Dressel you know and you, I think you know there's a lot of talk about things never changing things staying the same so yeah I think it's a really interesting scene there and of course you now have this build-up of who is this Miles and what is he gonna bring to the table <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So, like, Miss Giddens speaks to Mrs. Gross and is kind of trying to gauge, like, what kind of boy Miles is, because he's been expelled for being a bad influence. But Mrs. Gross just says that, like, Miles is just a boy. Like, he just does things that boys do, and she can't imagine him having done anything like that. Um, so Miss Giddens and Flora go to meet miles at the train station and they bring him back home and it's like one of the things in the film for me is that the children speak like very grown up uh, I wasn't sure if this was like a, a time like a time thing or a possession thing because they always like refer to like older people as like and each other as like my dear my dear and that's something like I dissociate with my nana like that's how my nana talks um, yeah I really feel like they slip between being childlike and you can almost, it almost like jolt you out when they go, like you say, of course, my dear. And it, it seems very mature and, and very unlike how a child would speak. And I, I, I totally agree. I think it's, this is like them slipping in and out of like a possession. So, but just on that train station scene, and I've just got to, <laughs> I've got to try and deconstruct that with you a little bit because it is played like this romantic reunion. Mm. It is so strange. You know, just before Miles, we see Miles sort of getting out of the train, there's a, a dissolve of like a male statue, like with chains. And then you see Miles and then he sort of runs over to Miss Giddens and there's like an exchange of flowers and kisses. And it's a very strange energy, isn't it? Yeah, like... It is like very flirtatious and yeah. very awkward. And like when they're in the carriage and he's just like, you're far too pretty to be doing this. And 
she says what's that you're such a deceitful flatterer and I'm like (laughs) this is this is odd like I don't think children speak like that and I don't think adults should speak back to children like that either um so yeah it's very odd very uncomfortable but I think that's interesting it's almost like an instantaneous thing that will be developed as you go on and that's not happening at Bly it's removed from Bly Mm. so it makes me wonder about how far is the reach of this possession (laughs) it's not just all at Bly it's it seems to operate even outside of of that environment as well. So um, eventually Miss Giddens actually starts to see apparitions of people throughout the complex. So the first time she sees a man on the tower and she rushes over immediately to see who this man is and she finds Miles sitting there with all of his doves and he's just like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, which again goes to another thing, like, was that Miles like being possessed and this was Peter Quint wanting to look over to see what was going on? Or is this all in Miss Giddens' head? Yeah, and I think he makes a remark about it being like Flora, like imagining things. So you get this sense again of like, particularly women in this film seem to be positioned with a notion of it's in it's all in your head you know it's all in your imagination and I think there's a scene where they're in uh, Flora's bedroom and she says you know uh, Miss Giddens hears a a noise from outside and and Flora says you know we 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 don't pretend because then we don't imagine and it's like it's this sense of imagination being both uh both like repressed and discouraged but also Mm. dangerous and like linked with like there's lots of talk particularly around miles of like contamination and you know like poison and I think that a lot of that's tied up in like sex and you know the sexual frustration that's just all over this film isn't it yeah (laughs) um so as well as seeing like apparitions of Peter Quinn um Miss Giddens also starts to see apparitions of Miss Jessel as well. I think she sees it, I'm not sure if it's like a lake or a pond, but she's like sitting with Flora and she she can see someday, but everybody keeps telling her it's like all in her head. This kind of grows in intensity for Miss Giddens when she decides to play hide and seek with the kids. they go and hide first and then she ends up in the attic and she finds this picture of Peter Quint and she's like I recognize this person and then Miles jumps out at her and it's like you never would have found me did I frighten you and then kind of has her in a headlock yeah which again is like quite a scary scene because you kind of see it from like both of their angles it kind of flips between them and you're not 100% sure what's going to happen like you kind of hope that a kid doesn't have enough strength to choke out an adult but it's you know Miss Giddens is in a very vulnerable position and you would be quite frightened yeah and I think he says now I've got you I'm not gonna let you go Mm. and she finds like a music box as well or someone finds a music box and it plays that same like song that we hear at the start so you're like oh 
like this is this things are not <laughs> things are not going to go well from here on in no definitely not so once she's kind of like out of that situation she tells the the kids are like okay we'll seek a new hide this time so she goes and hides behind this curtain you know you see her bringing her feet in to make sure she's completely hidden and then we the audience can see behind her that there's somebody approaching the window and this is when we the audience as well get our first good look at this like apparition that Miss Giddens keeps seeing and it is indeed Peter Quinn this scene is so creepy and the way he just like comes in and then when he goes out as well and the last thing you see is the light of his eyes Mm. it's very well shot very very well shot yeah it's almost like he floats in and then out it's very it did make me think of Shakespeare and like you know vengeful ghosts and like King Lear and Hamlet and I think showing us the the sort of photograph before that scene just solidifies that that that's who it is so it's a great I think that's it was a great choice but all those the the, the apparition scenes that she sees are terrifying that, that scene of Miss Jessel on the lake it, it's it's one of the scariest scenes for me in horror because like I look at it and it's really it's quite uncanny to me because my head's trying to process it's like it's like she stood on top of a lake and there's like reeds behind her and my brain's trying to make sense of it but at the same time I'm having like an emotional reaction to it and a fear reaction. Hmm. So Miss Giddens like tries to get out of Miss Gross like who these people were like because at this point Miss Giddens is absolutely convinced there's like some ghostly presence in the house and they're, they're affecting the children's behaviour because um, that's another thing like during the film I don't I don't have kids I don't want kids and kind of this film solidifies why because the way the kids react I don't hate them but I'm like I would have no idea what to do I don't they would just be doing their thing and I'd, I'd be like I don't understand what you want I'm like I'm not going <laughs> to care for children and in this film like they behaved like really strangely and like have these little hissy fits and stuff sometimes yeah. and or sometimes like in a wee corner whispering and then other times they're like all over Miss Giddens like please give me your attention and affection and it's a lot um and she's like I love children and I think she does genuinely like want to do what's best for them so when she's kind of seeing more and more of this strange behavior she goes to Miss Gross and is like like what happened between these two people before and I found this scene like really quite upsetting like she Miss Gross then goes on to describe like a really actually abusive relationship between Peter Quinn and Miss Jessel like talking about how she he would basically knock her in the next week but she was so absolutely besotted with him that she would never leave him and I found that like really quite hard to listen to because if you know anything about domestic abuse, you'll know that there's several people out there who do the same things. It's really hard for them to leave. And it sounds like Miss Gross was like, you need to stop this. But she was just so in love that she couldn't. Yeah, it's, it is. It's a really upsetting scene. And, you know, it, it creates a lot of empathy now for the ghost. So it kind of switches your allegiances around. But Miss Giddens, like, because she is 
was so repressed I don't think she has that same sympathy for Miss Jessel because she's just kind of like well why were you here on the toilet around Bly Manor you know you should have been chased because you're not married and it was so inappropriate and you know it's it's kind of like that kind of rhetoric is hard for me because it's like she's just in love like you know and she was getting battered black and blue like you should have a bit of sympathy for her but Miss Giddens is just like not really having it I think she's I think Miss Giddens has got a lot of like repressed frustration sexually and I think to her sex is equals bad equals corruption you know there's like Miss Grouse says something about the rooms being like dark woods you know it's like sex is a corruptive force and you know I think part of me sometimes thinks does she she wishes that she could be that more like sexually liberal free woman um that that you know that that world was kind of open to Miss Jessel but it's not open to her and maybe that's tied up in a you know daughter of a parson upbringing mm. <laughs> definitely because it's, it's that way as well she's meant to be quite young she talks about like, loving children and like is there a bit of I don't know maybe jealousy like she wants her own mm-hmm. children but she can't have them because yeah. there is no husband which I get I know this film set in like the 1860s but it's like hard for me to get into that type of thought being in 2022 but yeah that is maybe what she's wanting as well so Miss Giddens is just getting like more and more riled up about these ghosts and at one point her and Flora are again by the lake and she sees Miss Jessel if Flora's singing this song and Miss Giddens is like where did you learn that song and she's just like I don't know um just playing around with the boat she just about drowns or tortoise I don't know why nobody talks about that in the film I know (laughs) it's a poor tortoise like oh they can't swim (laughs) 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 they're just out a window later for fuck's sake (laughs) but anyway (laughs) and Miss Giddens is like you have to see this woman and is grabbing this child and is like look look tell me you see Miss Jessel and she really like traumatizes this kid she is screaming and she continues to scream through the night because Miss Giddens has upset her so much and like what what do you think about this scene? I, you know, see, it's tough, isn't it? Because I'm still, I'm still with Miss Good. I want someone to sort of validate her at this point because she's so distraught. And of course we can see Miss Dressel as well. So we want someone to validate us. And, you know, I'm still doubting whether Flora's being honest and telling the truth. And then, as you say, she has that hissy fit. The, at first I'm like, okay, because she, Miss Giddens was pretty cruel but then it just becomes really annoying because it goes on and on and I'm like oh this is so irritating and I think Miss Grouse says that she is like cursing and swearing which she hadn't done before Miss Giddens came so I get this sense that now Miss Grouse is starting to turn on Miss Giddens a little bit which sort of just makes me more want to like go oh I'm team Miss Giddens it's like I believe you (laughs) I know it's hard because you can see like how wound up she is about the whole situation like 
I'm sure we've been in those situations before where maybe we've been like gaslit or something and you're just yeah. like, no, I know that this is what's going on and everyone else around you is going like, nope, nope, nope. And it's it's really frustrating. So yeah, do get what you mean. I am a bit, I am a bit on Miss Gittin's side, but I feel bad for Flora that <laughs> she's screaming all night. So later that night, she goes to see Miles. And we've already kind of like touched on their kind of weird flirty relationship. And it kind of ramps up here. Oh, it ramps up. Yeah. <laughs> They're talking in bed and he asks her does he ask her for a kiss he he yeah he says can he can I give you a kiss good night and it goes right on the mouth and it lasts a really long time and it's it's a romantic kiss a hundred percent yeah it's the reactions afterwards like he looks dreamy eyed yeah and she looks a bit shocked but a bit stimulated by it as well yeah exactly um you know when it's a kid doing that you can kind of be like oh they don't understand but she doesn't do anything to stop it she accepts it but it's that way we've kind of talked about before she's so this is not an excuse anybody who's like I want to I want to kiss children now please don't um but she's so repressed she's probably never been like had that before it's like you say as well, a lot of the scenes with them happen in the bedroom. So it has this added layer of intimacy to it, you know, and I, I guess maybe we'll get to it in a moment, but there's two scenes, there's two scenes of kissing in the film and there's this first one, which is, um, it's Miles that takes the lead, but there's also a second one where Miss Giddens takes the lead. And yeah, both of them have a, a real air of discomfort and, I almost feel like is she is she just she just see Peter Quint in this situation, but we, we don't get given that, so I I don't know. Yeah, because earlier in the film, when her and Mrs. Gross are talking about it, Mrs. Gross says, "Is he handsome?" And she's like, "Yes, he's handsome, but he's obscene." And it's like that's the two sides of her being like, "Oh, I fancy you a little bit, but you look like a scary bad man, so no, yeah, stay away." Right. So, like, maybe it is, like, she's looking at Miles, but actually seeing Peter as this, like, forbidden fruit type thing. It's gross. We're talking about children like that. (laughs) But like I said, like I said, it's like, like, there is a lot of uncomfortability in this film, and a lot of it is between Miss Giddens and Miles. It's not very nice. And what an incredible performance by... I forget his name. Someone Stevens, I think. The 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 child that plays Miles. My goodness, like just such a mature, off like just slightly offbeat performance. It's like he understands what he's delivering, but I think at that age, how could you possibly understand? I know. I think both of the the child actors, um, Martin Stevens and Pamela Franklin, do an amazing job in this. Um, Jack Clayton like worked really hard to kind of protect them from the more sinister aspects of it. So they got given their lines daily, and just like worked that way and they did an absolutely amazing job so Miss Giddens decides that she needs she needs to have some time with Miles to try and figure out what's going on so she asks Mrs Gross to take Flora and all the other house servants away and I think she sends them to the uncle Mm -hmm. 
yeah um so that she can figure out what's going on because she's like I know he's about to tell me I don't remember I'm talking through this that it's like that girlfriend that's just like you're it's not you you're not like this do you know what I mean <laughs> and I'm almost like oh she wants alone time with Miles oh okay this is a bit worrying so when she gets him alone Miss Giddens tries to press him about why he got kicked out of school and it turns out that he was being violent and using vulgar language with the other boys so that's one mystery out the way and then Miss Giddens continues to press him about the ghosts so again like she was told at the start of the film like don't talk to the kids about the former workers don't talk to Flora about Miss Jessel they were very close so again at the lake no wonder she got so stressed out and Miss Gibbons was told that Michael and Peter not Michael Miles sorry and Peter were very close and he also found Peter's body like dead so this is going to be like another thing that's going to trigger this wee boy because at the end of the day they are like little kids but she is absolutely determined for someone to confirm what she's been thinking this whole film is that Peter Quint and Miss Jessel are haunting this house and possessing the children. So they have this back and forth in the courtyard and they start to see Quint's face again. Miles, like Miss Giddens is like, say his name, say his name. And Miles is just like going through it because he doesn't want to talk about it. It's maybe like a, a locked up memory somewhere and when he says Quint's name, he falls to the ground. And Miss Giddens is like happy. She's like, oh, he said it. They're all going to go away. But Miles has died. And as she's sobbing, she leans over and again gives him this really long kiss, long romantic, intimate kiss on the lips. And then it's the scene again from the start um, of her like praying, saying she just wanted to save the children. What do we think of this last scene? So, yeah, so as you, as you said, you've got the backwards and forwards, which is very, it's, you know, it's very charged. And I think at one point they were almost like in the garden area before they go out to the courtyard and they're both like sweating. So there's like, does this it just adds another layer of like uncomfort, uncomfortable to this that uh, there's just like a charge in the air that's really weird and then yeah so they go out into the courtyard and like she's caressing him and it's like she's saying you know say his name now while I'm holding you um and then you know as you said he collapses and she has this really extended kiss that's is very prolonged and again I'm wondering is this is this almost like Miss Dressel kissing Quint goodbye? It kind of seems to maybe mirror that. Um, but again, it's not it's not explained. Um, and I think that's part of the film's appeal. And then we get that sort of cyclical ending where, you know, it ends the way it started. So then I've got, I have this, it, I like cyclical films because they really give me this creepy feeling of, well, are things just going to go on a loop? Is, like, another governess going to come and is the same thing going to, like, reoccur? <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, it's very true. Um, yeah, you're so right. The cinematography in this film is fantastic. Like we kind of said that already, but these like close-ups of Miles when he's sweating are in such excruciating detail. Like you can, mm. you totally feel like he's going through it, which so unfair to put a child through that. But you know, Miss Giddens is completely at her wit's end at this point, trying to find an explanation for everything that's going on. What do you think happens? Like, do you think there are ghosts? Do you think Miss Giddens is just, you know, imagining it? You know, I'm really going to say that uh, I think you can go a bit like Rosemary's Baby, actually. This, that The aspects of that ambiguity and the double readings really remind me of Rosemary's Baby. That I think you can go so far down one road and then you don't quite get there. And then you can go so far with another theory and not quite get there. So I I have a lot of empathy for Miss Giddens. I will say that, Um, you know, and it's, it's not it's not a cathartic ending. She doesn't get to save the children. Well, she she's Flora. She saves Flora, but she doesn't get to save the children. I think. I don't like the idea of leaning into it's a hysterical woman that doesn't know her own mind because I find that a very troubling presentation and I think that's why I enjoy the fact that Clayton doesn't fall into that trap with this film so I just appreciate that it gives me more than one possibility (laughs) yeah absolutely I think the ambiguity is the most like fun part about this film because you can make your own ending you can and there's so many different endings like she could be arrested for murder like she could just like run away like it could very well be that there are ghosts and Miles just adds to Quentin Miss Jessel like there's so many different ways you can take it and that's just fun for somebody watching to make their own decisions I think anyway yeah (laughs) So uh, this is another film a couple of weeks ago when we did uh, The Worker Man. It it gave us the budget in pounds, but the box office in dollars for some reason. So this was made on a 430k budget. Wow, just wow. I know. (laughs) Deborah Kerr apparently got paid like 200k to be in this film. Okay. I'm like, good for you, girl. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, work, girl. And it made um, 1.2 million in North America. I couldn't find anything beyond that, but I still think that's quite good for North America and this kind of film and certainly the time period as well. Mm. So in terms of ratings, this got a 7.8 out of 10 on IMDb and 95% from the Rotten Tomatoes critics and 86% from the audience and an 88% on Metacritic. So definitely high up there. Um, I think... Did BFI do a re-release of this in 2013 as part of like a horror classics? And I think that really boosted things up because it reintroduced this film to a lot of people who wouldn't have seen it before. And it quite rightly has like really high ratings now, whereas when it first came out, I don't think it was as beloved. Um, But there we go. Uh, Time is a healer. So Rebecca, (laughs) (laughs) what do you rate The Innocence out of 10? Oh, what do I rate out of 10? Oh my goodness. Okay. I oh, I would rate it. I give it. Oh, I'm going to go with a nine. 
yeah nine out of ten I think that's fair I think I'm also gonna go with a nine um even though it took me a couple of watches to be like right I know this film but I think like once I kind of absorbed the plot it's like the plot is great the acting's great yeah the costuming is amazing the cinematography is amazing like everything about this film just hits right so I like I don't really feel like I can give it any lower than that and I um, can see myself watching it in another 20 years and it just not feeling like it's dated and that the themes oh. are still pertinent you know so yeah more people go and watch the innocents <laughs> <laughs> maybe yes. we should like we should like hire out like a manor house and we can have a screening of it <laughs> oh that would be so good wouldn't it <laughs> Right, so now we've covered movie one of the spooky sleepover. Let's get into movie number two, which is Night of the Living Dead. Welcome to a night of total terror. Night of the living dead, the dead who live on living flesh, the dead whose haunted souls hunt the living, the living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. Of the living dead. A bizarre adventure in fear. An experience in shock more shattering than your strangest nightmare. Night of the living dead. A night with the dead who cannot die. A night of total terror. Night of the Living Dead. So the IMDb plot for Night of the Living Dead is a ragtag group of Pennsylvanians barricade themselves in an old farmhouse to remain safe from a horde of flesh-eating ghouls that are ravaging the east coast of America. This film came out in 1968, stars Dwayne Jones, Judith O'Day and Carl Hardman. This was directed, of course, by George A. Romero. Um, He directed most of the Living Dead franchise and also Season of the Witch and the Crazies. Um, It was also written by George Romero and um, was co-written by George A. Russo. Um, what are your initial thoughts on Night of the Living Dead? Okay, I feel like I'm going to have to apologise. Start <laughs> with an apology because uh, zombie zombie horror is my least favourite subgenre. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, everyone. Having said that, um, this film is 
obviously, I mean, it occupies such an important place in horror history, doesn't it? You know, it's um, it's a very bleak film. During this time, I was like, this is such a bleak film. And it touches on a lot of themes, you know, that I think makes it stand out from any other horror film of the time, or even now, you know, just in terms of its content and what it's exploring. You know, every couple of years I revisit it. And what appeals to me in this film is not so much the zombies, but it's the social drama. So it's like the shut in aspects, like people shut in a house and the conflict that occurs between them. And also the commentary of like the government and authority and, you know, how much we trust that and, you know, I saw a production of this as well at my like local theatre, which was incredible. Yeah, so every time I come to this film, I find something new and I really appreciate that. It's like, you know, 1968, but it's like, it seems to be able to reflect socially and politically like any time, you know? It feels like you can project whatever's happening currently, you know, onto this film. Yeah, absolutely. Like the first time I watched this film was during the pandemic. So okay, the, so there was a lot of the interactions between the people in the house and kind of how like selfish Henry Cooper can be to how like selfless Ben is, like really juxtaposed what was happening in real life when you know there was no right at the start there was no food in the shops because people were like overbuying everything and then. There were vulnerable people who couldn't get anything and yeah there's definitely you can definitely see that and even you know we're two years on from that now and different aspects of things you can see the real difference between the Coopers and Ben and how they reflect society still and it's what 50 60 years later it's crazy yeah, like my real takeaway this time was like a pandemic reading of the film, just like you. And, you know, there's so many correlations, like being told to stay indoors, an outbreak happening, but you're not fully understanding what's happening. Lots of fear, you know, like tuning into like newscasts and having that lack of trust in what's the messages that are being conveyed, you know, law officials being unable to give explanations, being slow to respond. And then, you know, hearing about people seeking advice from experts, but they're not actually taking that advice, you know, um, just like not being filled with confidence by those who are in power. And then, you know, notes as well of like just corrupt governments and you know, I guess we'll get to it by the end, but like dispatching people to kill the ghouls and how that is carried out and how far they go to check that what they're doing, you know, as opposed to, it feels like, well, we get to it when we get to the end and I guess, but it's like this sense of, uh, they don't bother to check who is a ghoul and who isn't. They just want to get trigger happy. <laughs> Yeah, it still sounds like police in 2022. <laughs> <laughs> so our film opens with siblings Barbara and Johnny driving to a cemetery to visit their father's grave. Um, we kind of, and it's like, 
like you're saying this film like every time you watch it there's something new to pick up on and I think for me it was like all the little background bitties that are telling you what's going on that you maybe don't yeah. notice the first time and with the radio you kind of start to hear about something that's happened and on this occasion the zombie apocalypse has been caused by radiation from a fallen satellite and I did wonder if there's like commentary there about the space race if people were like scared about it because it was just like a year later that we landed on the moon cue me furiously googling are there are there radiation (laughs) on satellites there isn't (laughs) there's nothing to be worried about (laughs) but at this point in time they didn't know that yeah, sure. And, and what a great opening this is. It's like you've got the car creeping through the roads. There's like a, a US flag. The score is so instrumental in this, like no pun intended, but it, it's like it it really adds another layer of like eeriness straight away. And it's so vital in like set and tone and atmosphere. I think Johnny and Barbara are so believable as like, you know, in their relationship with each other, right? Absolutely. Yeah, because he's just like winding her up the whole time. Like she's like, mum wants us to do this. Like, let's go and do this. And he's like, I'm fucking sick of this already. Like, can we just go home? And it's so funny. Like she's been like the very dutiful daughter and he's just like, get me out of here. (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's interesting. There's like a mention of him being... Condemn, condemned to hell by his grandfather and you know it's like a nice echo of like what's going to happen to him of his fate you know and it's like I I, I sort of pulled up the, the time stamp and it's like six minutes in and we see one of the zombies and Johnny is killed like that's, that's such a quick pace of like no messing about here we're just getting straight down to it and I appreciate that you know yeah absolutely like yeah, Barbara sees this strange man and Johnny's like making fun of her for it. And then eventually, like, he is caught and killed by it. Um, I feel like Barbara in this film is she kind of gets the damsel in distress trope, which is a bit unfortunate, but I do think we have to take into consideration maybe the more we know about mental health and stuff now like Barbara is traumatized like she's been to visit her father's grave she's very far from home she's watched her brother be killed she's seen a zombie yeah like I think people need to go for a break (laughs) I totally I've got the same note exactly and that's something else that I that this time I was really reflecting on because she can get hard with this like oh annoying and uh, fragile kind of label but like all the things you've just said exactly you know and I think she does it absolute best it's like a she was right to be scared and she sort of survived in that graveyard so her intuition was correct b she hides out in the car so it's like she she runs to protect herself as quickly as she can and one of the things in that scene that I, I picked up on that I hadn't really considered before. So when she's in the car and the zombie's trying to get inside, I found it really affecting because, you know, he's he's headbutt in the car and then it's a brick through. And it really made me think about, you know, sexual predators and people that don't put distance and refuse, like to take no for an answer and it's like I'm coming for you I'm coming into your space mm. I found it really triggering that scene like and I'm not 
I'd never felt that way before about it, but just the sense of her being in this confined space and this, like, I know it's a ghoul, but still was a man coming and interfering with, you know, that boundary. Yeah. It was a lot, you know, and then she runs away t- to find the house. So it's like, that. I think you can go, after that she becomes quite speechless and, you know, but there's a lot of, as you say, there's a lot we can tie to that in terms of mental health and trauma. So I don't necessarily think that it speaks to a weakness of character. She has been subject to all these traumas and that's her way that's a mechanism that's that's the way her body and mind responds to it right yeah exactly so yeah when I was watching it this time around I was like people need to give Barbara a break because I would probably be the same I would probably be catatonic too and I think it's the thing of like being so far away from home like if I could run home I think I would feel a lot better but as we find out it starts she's three hours away from home so she doesn't know where she is either she like she's running she doesn't even know if she's gonna find shelter yeah that's terrifying but anyway as we're saying um Barbara runs and finds this farmhouse and I get another traumatizing thing she finds this dead half-eaten woman as well so she's in this house on her own she sees these zombies like multiplying they're slowly walking to the house but then this man arrives in a vehicle called Ben and he secures the house with any like he tears the house apart and secures it and kind of gets her to help as well so Ben is a really important character in this film and we like we absolutely have to spend a bit of time talking about him. Yeah. So Romero has always said that Cass and Dwayne Jones was just colorblind casting. Ugh, I hate that word. But <laughs> in that context, anyway, he's like, I wrote him as a white man, but Dwayne did the best audition, so he got the role. But because of the time period... And because Ben is a black man, it completely changes the character. Yeah, completely. And, and in terms of where his journey goes, you know, it, it has a, echoes of, you know, a lot of ongoing, unfortunately, issues around police br- brutality with, with, with people of colour. But I think, you know, Ben immediately is very opposite to Barbara. You know, he's he's calm, he's practical, he's focused, he swings right into action. You know, he's a good communicator. He understands the importance of communicating. Even when things begin to fracture, he's always telling people what he's doing, what they need to do. He's a natural leader, isn't he? You know, um, he, he is, you know, he has this scene though, that I wanted to ask you about. So he has this scene where he describes his sort of journey to the house and the traumatic things that he's seen to Barbara, you know, being surrounded by ghouls, etc., hearing screams. And then in turn, there's like a moment where she's trying to share her story and it does take her a long time, admittedly, you know, but I guess she is trying to work through things in her head still. And she's trying to make sense of things. You know, she's probably got like survivor's guilt and, you know, because Johnny's been left and it feels like she doesn't really get the space to say her story. But um, yeah, he's like I say, practical. He finds the guns, the bullets, the food, the radio. I I think it's really sweet that he gets to the shoes. I think that's so nice. (laughs) 
you know I think like the way the Barbara's coping mechanism is to go in his is to let's get into action that's the way he copes you know and that's what the group needs because that's the only way they're going to survive yeah exactly he's like he's thinking about everything he's like making sure the radio's turned on so that they get updates about things like when they find the tv he's like get the chairs together put the tv there so everybody can see it so we know what's going on he's just immediately like tearing the house apart like right let's get this place barricaded like he's just on it from the start and I'm just watching this film like and you won't bend like if there's a crisis because absolutely yeah he would just solve everything um yeah, um, I, I do get what you mean about that scene when they're talking about their traumas. Like, Dwayne Jones has had rather, he's no longer with us, a theatre background. So he's very, like, very good at those, like, soliloquies. Um, and you see that in that scene as well. Um, but I think as much as it's a bit, like, clanky, I feel like that's maybe how someone who's traumatised would talk through their trauma so as much as a bit clanky and maybe the audience is like oh Barbara's a bit of a shit character like it seems very true to life for me anyway yeah I think a lot of people do find it frustrating and whiny and like get to the point you know a little bit like um someone else who I love to champion that I think is really misunderstood is like Wendy and the Shining because it's a very similar attitude of like oh she whines and she you know but I think like you say she's still actually processing it I mean this happened minutes ago (laughs) you know how would you you present after everything she's been through yeah exactly it's like one of those things is traumatic enough and she goes through all of it in like the space of a few hours like give her a break so we learn that Barbara and Ben are not the only people in this house Mm -hmm. and Harry and Tom emerge from the cellar understandably Ben is fucking raging because he's like you just heard me board this house up and you stayed down the stairs and Harry's like well yeah we didn't know what was going on up here so you can kind of see it from both sides but over the course of over the course of the film you kind of learn how selfish Harry really is yeah it's like he also um Ben also says you know did you not hear Barbara screaming Mm. and they like I get this strong sense that they absolutely did, but they just chose not to do anything about it. And it's it, like, it, it circles back to the pandemic discussion we were just having before around this sense of self-preservation. So yeah. rather than like helping others, just looking after ourselves, you know? And I really read like Ben is someone who is very open and willing to help others. And Harry is very much all about the individual. Yeah, that's so true. Like, it's still very much like a point of discussion at the moment. Like, people keep saying the pandemic's over and it's not. And, you know, if you wear a mask or something, people think you're a weirdo. And it's like, it's completely up to you. Like, if you, you know, still want to do that, even though the regulations aren't in place anymore, because it is like, it's a jungle out there. There was what, yeah. like 3.5 million people diagnosed with COVID last week or something. Like it's still very much a thing. Um, 
so yeah I totally get that and a lot of people are just like but I've had enough that's like we've all had enough babe like yeah (laughs) Yeah, we're in this together yep (laughs) it's not been a great time in our lives but something like that it's you do have to work together to stop it and similarly with these people they all have to work together to stop it they all could have worked together they all could have been saved but because of some people's like selfish actions Harry in particular they all end up dead by the end of the film and it's really sad because it's not for like Ben tries really hard Tom tries really hard to try and save everybody and his girlfriend Judy does as well like Barbara's not really in a fit position but you know they're working hard because she's not in a fit position because there's a sick child downstairs to make sure that everybody lives and gets out of there whereas Harry just really cares about well I was gonna say him and his wife but they fight a lot in this film I think maybe (laughs) just like him and the child or maybe just him yeah, and, you know, the literal division is sort of solidified by the sense of the cellar versus upstairs, right? And th- there's this almost like this standoff, you know, this, like, assertion of who has power, who has control. Yes, um, Ben is so frequently like, I'm in charge up here, you can be in charge down the stairs. Um, quite right. <laughs> yeah, and it's, do you know, the tragedy of it is that I thought this time, because I always just think, oh, Harry's an absolute... You mean he's just the scum. But um, <laughs> it begins at one point to look like they actually are working together. You know, they, you're taking direction from Ben at one point. And um, Ben and Judy, like, when they head out to get the gas and, you know, everything happens there, um, and Ben's left on his own. And he, he comes back to the house and he's asking to be let in by Cooper. But... It, he will not let him in and Ben has to kick the door down and I'm like no lesson has been learned here he has not changed in attitudes or fundamentals whatsoever the only reason I think you have that section where he's helping out is because he knows it's going to help him when he stands to not benefit he's not interested you can say that about like so many things though because there's obviously also the commentary about Ben being a black man, Harry's a white man, and he doesn't want to take orders from a black man. Um, and it's like it's again the same thing. Like we have people making laws about trans bodies and like people with uteruses and stuff like that, and they don't care about the implications because it doesn't directly affect them. Mm-hmm. And it's a similar thing here. Like Harry doesn't care about Ben. But he cares about how we can use him to survive. Exactly. So um, Harry emerges from the cellar. It turns out that him, his wife Helen, and their daughter Karen are down there, as well as Tom and his girlfriend Judy, who also just happened upon the house. All of these people, like while trying to escape, just ended up in this house. So I believe it was the Coopers first, then Tom and Judy, and then Ben and Barbara have been residing up the stairs. The Coopers talk about how this random person bit their daughter, and she's currently in the cellar, very sick. Tom and Judy discuss how they heard about the emergency broadcast and just tried to escape where they were to try and avoid the killings. And while all this is happening, like more and more zombies are like coming towards the house. 
uh, they continue to listen to the radio and the television, which talks about a wave of mass murders. So even at this stage, they still don't fully know what's going on. They don't know what's caused it, but they are encouraging policies of armed men to patrol the countryside and kill people who are performing these murders, which is really scary. Um, Again, in an American context, like there was the siege of the Capitol building last January, and this was just like people being like, I don't like what is happening right now. So they went with their guns, which they're legally allowed to have, and stormed a government building. And, you know, a lot of politicians and stuff have not called this out, have not said it was a bad thing. And this is the government mandating that people go out with their guns and kill people. It's it's a lot. It is a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's a wonder any of us just make it through the day, really, isn't it? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Thank God we've got horror. <laughs> exactly. Watch horror movies to get through. So the television broadcast also confirms that these things can be stopped with a bullet or a heavy blow to the head or being burned. And we've kind of found out earlier that Ben like scared them off with fire, that they don't like fire. Um, and there's reports of various rescue centres. So this is when Ben comes up with the idea of taking his truck and getting out of here. His truck is run out of gas though, that's how he ended up at the farmhouse in the first place. And I think it's the Coopers say that there is gas in uh, like a store nearby. So Ben and Tom try to get the vehicle to the store, fill it up with gas so they can get away. But Ben, not Ben, Tom ends up like spraying the car with gas instead. And the fire that they took with them to scare off the zombies ends up setting the truck on fire and Tom and Judy are blown up with it, which is really sad to see. Like with all the, one of the like really good things I love about this film is that you get to know all these characters really quickly. Like it's a good testament to the writing and it's sad to see Tom and Judy go. They seem like good people. They seem really in love. They were so young and it's just sad to see them go like this. Yeah. And it's like, it feels like now they've gone, it's just inevitable that more of the group are going to die as well. It's like the clock's ticking now, right? Because there's less of them, so. Exactly. So this leaves Ben on his own. And like you said, he tries to run back to the house, but Harry doesn't let him in. Um, He eventually breaks down the door and Ben just beats him up. (laughs) Quite rightly so, (laughs) uh, for being a total coward. So... This leads the zombies to eventually break down the barricade and they are now in the house. Um, We see Barbara, unfortunately, get taken away by her zombified brother, like just kind of pulled through. Is it like a window or a door or something? And dragged away by a reanimated Johnny, which is really sad because it's his death that's made her like this. And now he's the one that's going to take her away and either turn her into a zombie or just eat her. It's really horrible. 
Yeah, it's so tragic. And I think the other people, some of the other people that are still in the house, I, I think maybe it's Ben is trying to like, this is the moment where he's like trying to help her, but then he knows that she's just lost to, to, the, to the zombie pack. <laughs> exactly. Um, ben shoots Harry, quite right. Um, the daughter, Karen, succumbs to her injuries. Um, we find that the Coopers have been keeping quiet about the fact that she was actually bitten by one of the zombies. And she reanimates and kills her mother, Helen. Um, Helen comes down the stairs and sees her eating her father and then stabs Helen to death with this masonry trowel. Helen's death is like probably my favourite because like the music in the background is so trippy and it's just 1968 a child killing her mother like I wonder what audiences were thinking like it's it's such a spectacle isn't it and it's like if if she'd have killed Harry but Helen it's like you know and mum was looking out for her it's like she didn't deserve it no she didn't (laughs) So, like, obviously there's more and more zombies coming in. Ben decides to get into the cellar. It seems like the safest place to be. He shoots Harry again, and he shoots Helen's reanimated corpse, and he takes refuge in the cellar. Um, In the morning, we see this posse arrive to the farmhouse. They're taking care of all the wandering ghouls, and Ben kind of hears what's going on. He goes to an upstairs window, and he's shot. I remember the first time I watched this, I rewound this three times because I was like, what? Like, I did not understand what was happening or how this could have happened. Um, were you similar? So it's like this ending, I, I was trying to watch it this time completely as though I'd never seen it before. And it made me think about, you know, in horror films, how... Um, you have like things that normally happen like through the night and then you've got dawn and then you have this sort of moment where rescue services come and it's like things are okay and it's like here we've got like dawn the sun's coming up and there's helicopters and you're like as a first time viewer there is a, if I didn't know anything there's a possibility here that Ben's made it and he's gonna be fine you know there's a catharsis on its way and it just it makes it so tragic the like the authorities arrive and they it's so ironic that they say everything's under control and you're like <laughs> no um ben hears like the shouting and the sirens and you know you can imagine him being really like they've come for me it's like this is over it's like it's over you know um he doesn't even get outside like they don't even call to him they just see movement and shoot on sight and like to me that's the real devast. it's like they don't even call out it's like they're just shooting whatever they see and there's no the, th- the thing with this as well for me is okay we don't see it but there will there will not be any justice so you know there's no redemption there's no like the, the authorities will not be answerable for this crime, you know? And that really reflects, like we were talking before, you know, what's happening in terms of what's been happening for for, for just upsettingly too long a time, you know, pol- police brutality today and how 
the thoughtlessness of how life is taken, you know, just mm. the, the complete lack of thought and then the lack of justice that those people have to face. Absolutely. Like, <clears throat> in the notes here that I'm reading, it's like, where they mist- shoot and kill him, where they mistake him for a ghoul. And just like, again, because of the casting, it's like, have they? I mean, a lot of these, it's like very much pictures through the credits and the way they like yeah. just grab him with this hook. And it's very akin to pictures that we've seen before of lynching. Yeah. And it's like, was this by mistake? Was this on purpose? And I don't know, like, with the police, they do seem to have, a, like, a shoot first, think later kind of policy. Yeah. Um, even in the UK, they're very much happy to kind of demonise people of colour before, like, actually listening and seeing, yeah. like, what the situation actually is. So, yeah, it's really, really hard to watch. Um, I'm not sure, I can't remember my, like, timelines, but I'm not sure if, like, Jim Crow would have still been a thing at this point. And, you know, very much in the midst of the civil rights movement, it could very well have been somebody in a position of power just being like, bang, like, one less person like that to deal with. Um, so, yeah, it's it's really hard to watch. And because of the casting, you'll forever be questioning, was it a mistake, was it not? And it'd be so interesting, like, what conversations we would have about this film if... Ben was white because mm. Romero says he like never changed anything in the scripts like he was written as a white man but Dwayne Jones did the best audition so he got cast I think for audiences at the time as well you know they're, they're watching this play out you know in the wake of you know the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and and then Malcolm X just a few years before. So it's it's very like it's it's very present to, to them and as it is to us now, sadly. Well, there were some cinemas in the south that wouldn't even show this because the main character was black, which is crazy that you deprive yourself of this because of racism. But there you yeah. go. She said those like end credits, like they, they it's hard to even think I'm watching a film. It feels like actual footage. It does. It looks like, you know, crime scene footage. It's yeah, it's really hard to watch. Um, yeah, and he's just thrown in a bonfire and burnt, and it's like it's not even one of them. But yeah, that's that's the end of the film. Um yeah, like I said, I had to rewind this three times the first time I watched it because I just could not believe what was happening. Um, and even still, I was like keeping a careful eye on the, the TV this time because I was like, it's going to happen again. Is there something I missed the first time? But there really mm. isn't. He's just shot. And that's it. Like, we spent all this time with this person. And yeah. he's just gone. It's, oh, it's already kicking the guts. But... At the same time, it's like it's a really good ending because yeah, these kind of situations are like really hopeless. Yeah, and you know, um, yeah, hopeless is the word, and just yeah, like pointless. It's like mm. it just did not have to happen. Definitely. Uh, so let's get into box office ratings then. So, Nine Eleven Dead is 
really well known for being like one of the most profitable independent films of all time. This has made an 114k budget and it made 30 million at the box office, which is crazy. It's something like over 260 times its its budget. So um. that is absolutely insane. But another thing it's also kind of well known for, there was a bit of bother with the copyright. Uh, so this film exists in public domain. So George Romero didn't actually make a huge amount of money from it. And that's why you will see it in films that are playing films all the time, because it's just like a really easy one to use because it's free. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of ratings, this film got a 7.8 out of 10 on IMDb and 96% from the Rotten Tomatoes critics and an 87% from the audience and it got an 89% on Metacritic. Uh, Rebecca, what would you rate Night of the Living Dead out of 10? So, it being a zombie film and all, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I would, gosh, it's as we've, you know, now we've talked about it, even coming to this conversation, I was like, there's so much to this film, but having this exchange with you, I'm like, I feel like we could go on talking and then like in a few years time have a completely different conversation. So I think I'm going to go in at eight out of 10. Very good. Uh, I'm going to give this a nine out of 10. It's like an absolute classic. It should be on everybody's film watch list. Um, It's still like super relevant today. And, you know, despite how low budget it is, like the the makeup and stuff holds up a lot of the special effects hold up like it's just really well done from just like a really well done film from a group of friends a lot of the actors also performed on other roles and the Coopers did all the makeup uh, for example I didn't know that a lot of the a lot of the people who were acting in the film were also producers so it's a really good project that these group of friends all did together and it's still like one of the most influential films ever so yeah nine out of ten We've had high scores today. We have. It's been <laughs> two really good choices, which is ironic for next week. So next week, um, we're going to be talking about popular horror films that we don't like. Ooh, um, controversial. Yeah. So just kind of as a thing, like, it's that way you're at, like, you're at a spooky sleepover and someone's like let's watch such and such a film and it's something that's really really popular and you're sat there like oh my god I don't like it it's okay Lucy and I feel like that sometimes too (laughs) and we're gonna out ourselves alongside Neil from Talking Scared and we're gonna be talking about Hereditary and Hellraiser um I'm I'm speechless Um, so yeah, me and me and Lucy are trying to get cancelled next week, so that'll be fun. <laughs> um, Becca, do you have a film that you're just like, oh my god, everybody loves this and I don't, and oh, I don't know why. Oh, um, do I have a film? I I've got one. <laughs> I saw so saw. It's I just for whatever reason I just cannot get into it and because it's it's a film that has such an important uh place in horror I refuse to get rid of it out of my collection because I'm like 
every couple of years I'll watch it again and I'll be like, oh, please let me into the club. I want to like this film, but I just can't. I just can't. It just does nothing for me. Um, so, yeah, that's please don't cancel me. <laughs> we all have a film, so hopefully we'll all band together in solidarity with our popular film that we don't like and not feel bad about it anymore. Yeah, no, it's all everyone's. It's all a matter of individual, like whatever, isn't it? So no one should feel bad for hating any horror film. Exactly. Um. So Rebecca, where can our lovely listeners find you online? Oh, so um, I am at Pendle Pumpkin on Twitter and Instagram. Um, if I can just do a quick plug for Ghouls Magazine as well. So you can check out all our editorials, reviews and our Ghouls Gang podcast for members at ghoulsmagazine.com. Um, just a, a quick um shout out that specifically in relation to the innocence i've got a piece with attack from planet b called ghostly imaginings sexual repression and reliable narratives in the innocence and carnival of souls so people who are into the innocence might want to check that out and then just a final plug i recently released a pocket book called mums and sons which looks at familial relationships in horror across the babadook hereditary and psycho and you can pick that up at plastic brain press and they are at brain plastic on uh, twitter and um also their website is plastic hyphen brain hyphen press.com amazing um i'll need to make sure lucy buys that because lucy is currently writing their second um entry into the hear a scream um books and fabulous yeah I'm I'm editing I'm on the editing team for that oh, are so you? yeah 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 Lucy's next um piece is going to be about familial um horror and like familial um oh gosh <laughs> I can't even <laughs> say it like generational trauma that's the phrase I'm trying to get out in horror oh, okay oh there's so, plenty of that in hereditary <laughs> absolutely so yeah I'm gonna tell Lucy to get that or if she's not listening already listened to this and got it herself because that sounds right down their street um I am at hi it's Lindsay underscore on all social media you can find Lucy at lulu underscore pew on all social media the podcast is at girlfriend pod on Twitter and girlfriends underscore podcast on Instagram. We'll be back next week with Neil from Talking Scared talking about movies we don't like. <laughs> <laughs> Trying not to offend too many people. But until then, uh, stay spooky.